Hi everyone, this is Randy, one of your favorite hosts from Stones, Bones, and Shadows podcast. I am popping in today to share some exciting news that we are getting ready to launch our Patreon. If you want monthly bonus episodes, member Q&As, our own Tapophile book club discussions, and yes, even the occasional pet photo, let's just say we will have you buried in extra content, pun intended. Make sure to find us on Facebook, Instagram, and our website, Stones, Bones, and Shadows podcast. Podcast.com for more details as we approach the month of April for how to join in on all of the action. Hope to connect with all of you soon. From its beginning more than 300 years ago today, the story of the circular congregational church has been attached to the history of the city of Charleston. And the graveyard is the city's oldest burial ground with a monument dating from 1695. What lies beneath? An amazing burial ground with the first death's head and sole effigy I had ever seen. We will tell you all about it right now. This is Stones, Bones, and Shadows. friends and Taphophiles. I'm your host, Lachelle, and I'm joined today by Taylor, my right-hand gal. She is the one that makes this podcast possible with all of her editing and technical skills. Hey, Tay. Hi. Glad to be back. <laughs> Thanks for all you do. Of course. Today, I am taking you to one of the coolest graveyards I've ever been to, I think. <laughs> it's one of my favorites. And maybe I say that a lot, but it really is. <laughs> it is the Circular Congregational Church. Are you going to tell me why it's called circular? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm definitely going to get around to that. Okay. <laughs> it is a beautiful church that is circular now, but it didn't always start out that way. Hmm. The congregation was co-founded with Charlestown, the way it used to be called, Charlestown, mm -hmm. not Charleston. Charleston, as it was known then in about 1681 by the English Congregationalists, Scots Presbyterians, and French Huguenots of the original settlement. In a spirit of diversity, these dissenters erected a meeting house in the northwest corner of the walled city. The present-day church occupies that exact site. The street leading to it was called Meeting House Street, later shortened to Meeting Street. Hmm. It was a mixed denominational church. Exactly. The policy of hmm. this church was, quote, was not so much to define exactly the particular mode of their discipline or to bind their hands up to any one stiff form adopted by either Presbyterians, Congregationalists, or Independents, as to be upon a broad dissenting bottom, and to leave ourselves as free as possible from any foreign shackles, that no moderate persons of either denomination might be afraid to join them." Unquote. <laughs> so, no particular doctrine, but more of a general worship of Christ. That's interesting. I don't think I've ever heard of such a yeah. church before. Right. Just like people gathering together. Mm -hmm. During the colonial period, this unusual church had no official name, but in the church records from 1775 says, quote, suffered itself to be called either, suffered, which was funny, <laughs> suffered itself to be called either Presbyterian, Congregational, or Independent. So hmm. dissenters is kind of meaning dissenting from Catholicism. Oh, so they were separate. So they were Presbyterian. They were, you know, dissenting from the main body of the church, mm -hmm. but still worshiping Christ. So kind of more like the Presbyterians. Hmm. 
so suffered itself to be called either Presbyterian, Congregational, or Independent, sometimes by one of the names, sometimes by two of them, and at other times by all the three. We do not find that this church is either Presbyterian, Congregational, or Independent, but somewhat distinct and singular from them all, unquote. Interesting. So they, it seems like they almost took like bits and pieces from each. Mm-hmm. I think they wanted a church that didn't have maybe the strict doctrines that some of the other ones did. And they had just really staunch and very strong religious rules hmm. and everything. And so um, they wanted to be more chill, basically. <laughs> so this is the beginnings so. of like non-denominational Christian. And that's exactly what, that's the best way to put it, is non-denominational Christian. Where they just pick up different bits and pieces from each of the religions and not so much. It's more about the worship instead Mm -hmm. of the rules. Right. Got it. Many of their early ministers were from Scotland, England, Wales, and New England. It was first called the Old White Meeting House and was later enlarged in 1732. So from the beginning, they were a church open to anyone and most interested in having a worshiping place for all. Unfortunately, the earliest records of the church were lost when a violent hurricane swept them from the manse in 1713. The only artifact remaining from the 17th century is the brick grave structure of the Simons family, dating from 1695, found on the south side of the sanctuary. And it is or is one of the oldest graves in the city of Charleston. Wow. We'll talk about that a little bit more here in a minute. I've seen graves that old in Scotland Mm and England, but not in America so far. Yeah, I've never seen any that old. I haven't been to as many cemeteries as you have. You're my little tapophile in training. I am. I am. Nope, I will never catch up to you. I was going to say, I'll catch up, but I don't think that's possible. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Shaped by the independent, pushed and goaded by a colonial government that treated dissenters with contempt, this church became ground zero for revolutionary sentiment in the colony. Prominent members of the Meeting House and its distinguished minister, William Tennant, frequently spoke for political and religious freedom. Tennant actually took his own life in his hands when he made a wide tour of the Carolina backcountry in 1775 to gain supporters for the cause of independence. Another brave patriot. Mm Mm-hmm. Then, when the British captured Charleston in 1780, the members of the church were punished for their acts of treason against the crown by the illegal exile of 38 men to St. Augustine, Florida, which was in Spanish territory. Mm. We talked about that in, I think it was Keeping Up with the Joneses episode, Mm -hmm. but I'm sure it'll come up many times (laughs) because this was something that happened, but... And then those men were later sent to Philadelphia. Their families were left destitute in an occupied city. The meeting house, vacant since being hit by a cannonball, was used as a British hospital and afterwards just left a shell of a building. So because they weren't doing the religion of the crown, is that what you're saying? That that's why they got exiled to Florida? No, it was all the... It was the patriotism... It was all the patriotism and the speaking out against the crown. Oh, and that's what made them get exiled. Yeah, so they were considered... Enemies of the crown. They were considered traitors, enemies to the crown. Mm. Yet, those years of suffering forged the independent church into an instrument that would exert great influence on the political, religious, and cultural renaissance of the city after they gained independence. Minister Tennant had died in 1777, and in 1782, acting in great faith, the church in exile held a congregational meeting in Philadelphia, where they made arrangements to call a minister to Charleston as soon as may be feasible. Members remaining in Charleston began the very week of British evacuation to rebuild the meeting house. (laughs) Oh, it's kind of sweet. They were faithful members. They were. In 1804, the time had come to replace the Meeting Street House with a more commodious building. 
Martha Lawrence Ramsey proposed a circular form, and Robert Mills Charleston's leading architect, who also designed the Washington Monument in D.C., completed the plans. Hmm, that's interesting. The church he designed was a Pantheon-type building, 88 feet in diameter, with seven great doors and 26 windows. Fancy. Mm. Oh, it is. <laughs> On its main floor and in the gallery, it was said to accommodate 2,000 worshippers. It was the first major domed building in North America. It was described by one observer in 1818 as, quote, the most extraordinary building in the United States. However, people made fun of the fact that the church lacked a steeple and for years laughed at the rhyme, Charleston is a pious place and full of pious people. They built a church on Meeting Street, but could not raise the steeple. <laughs> <laughs> well, the people of the circular church, as it was now popularly called, stopped the laughter in 1838 by raising a New England-style steeple <laughs> that towered 182 feet above Meeting Street. <laughs> so like, oh, you want a steeple? I'd give you a steeple. I'll give you a steeple. <laughs> How about a 182-foot-tall steeple? <laughs> Take that. Take that. <laughs> During the glory days of 1820 to 1860, Circular Church had a large congregation of white and black members. The membership included two governors of the state, prominent senators, the editor of The Courier, and many others whose voices made Charleston eloquent. But it also included many slaves and the poor whose names were known mostly to those only within its walls. Wow, that's interesting that they let yeah. black people yeah, worship it, there as well. They really obviously felt that this was for everyone. Oh. I appreciate I, that. I love that. Because church isn't just for white people or just for black people. <laughs> it's for all people. It's for everybody. <laughs> so those beautiful walls of the circular church were not long to stand. On December 11th, 1861, a great fire started near the Cooper River. During the night, what was later called a hurricane of fire swept across the entire city leaving in its wake the ruins of old circular church. Can you imagine a fire that took out like a almost the entire city? Unfortunately, that happened a lot, though. That happened a lot in all these older cities like New Orleans. I know they kept talking That's about like true. there was like three different fires in New Orleans yeah, that were right. huge and like took out the entire city. And, and everything was happens a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and not long after the Civil War, followed with its own devastating effect. Oh. The black members of the church withdrew in 1867 to form Plymouth Congregational Church. The psychology of defeat continued to demoralize the church for more than a decade, and it was a humbled and much reduced congregation that began to gather the brick from the overgrown ruins of the great 1804 meeting house and began erecting a new sanctuary in 1890. They literally started picking up the bricks. <laughs> <laughs> Time and, to rebuild. <laughs> yes. Once again, the circular church raised the eyebrows of the establishment. The building they created from the ruins, the present-day meeting house, was a radical departure from the traditional Charleston architecture. It has a Romanesque style, quite modern for 1890. Mm -hmm. It was inspired by Henry Hobart Richardson and designed by Stevenson and Green of New York City. It bespeaks a spirit of nonconformity in a church that was breathing life again. The building combines two powerful forms. The circle of the exterior, reminiscent of the former church, and the universal symbol of eternity and wholeness. And the Greek cross, which is the interior plan, which is the Christian symbol of death and resurrection. And now, for more than a century, this worship place has moved the congregation gathered here to seek the wholeness and integrity of individuals in faith. The congregation, international and multiracial, have been served for over 30 years by tent-making clergy which means part-time. It's a reminder to the congregation that every member is called to priesthood and ministry. The Circular Church draws strength from its 325-year memory of worship. That is so long, right? And obviously not the same building over that mm -hmm. 300 plus years, but... In the same place. In the same exact place. The church is so 
gorgeous. It is so different. I can't wait to share the photos I took with all of you. For sure you took hundreds of photos too. Uh, yeah, I actually did. So just <laughs> at the church and the graveyard, I took like 500. Oh my goodness. <laughs> it really is one of my favorite graveyards ever. <laughs> By the way, Taylor, do you know the difference between a cemetery and a graveyard? Uh, your face says it all. <laughs> <laughs> I can like, guess. I assume the graveyards are connected to a church. Yeah. Oh, there we go. See, you I'm learning did, things. You did it. <laughs> yeah, a graveyard is a burial place that's next to the church. It is literally in the yard. Oh. And it's sometimes called a churchyard. Or like in Scotland, they call it a kirkyard. Yeah, we talked about that in the mm -hmm. Scotland episodes. It makes sense that, you know, it's a graveyard. Yes. I get it. <laughs> I see what you're doing there. <laughs> and so a cemetery is a burial place not associated with a church. It's its own thing. Then it's where multi-denominational people are buried like they don't even have to be denominational per se right. they're just people that need to be it's buried a, it's a burial place that is you know that it may be owned by a town or mm -hmm. you know something like that you didn't have to be part of that church's congregation to yeah. be buried there which is how all of these i went to a whole bunch in the south and I love churchyards. Mm -hmm. I love the old churches and all those old stones that are just surrounding the church. Mm -hmm. That to me is just one of my favorite little places to mm -hmm. look for headstones. Yeah. So you had to be a member of the congregation in order to be buried in that? I believe so. That's usually the practice. That's usually how it works. They called their graveyard the Circular Congregational Church Burying Ground. Circular Church and its graveyard are both just amazeballs. <laughs> to me, it feels like the church is almost castle-looking or hmm. reminds me of Temple Church in London with the rounded walls. Mm -hmm. It has rounded-topped windows and rounded double doors. Wow. Really tall walls and almost like turret-like towers. Mm-hmm. It feels older than 1890, but then maybe it's because the site... Some of the bricks and the graves date back over 300 years. Yeah, they literally picked up the pieces and built the church with what <laughs> they had, exactly. so it makes sense. And it just, it feels that. Yeah. The graveyard of Circular Church is likely the oldest English burial ground still in existence in Charleston. While many gravestones have disappeared, how would they have disappeared? You know, unfortunately, gravestones disappear. They break. Oh, they fall oh. down. I, I don't know what I was imagining in my head. Someone <laughs> just picking it up and running with it, I guess. But <laughs> I was like, they disappeared. <laughs> Someone do a magic trick on these. <laughs> I'm going to make this gravestone disappear. <laughs> Abracadabra. <laughs> well, I mean, that has been known to happen too. And people even now will take pieces of headstones that are broken mm -hmm. on the ground and those pieces could be used to be yeah. put back together to repair them so I'll I'm... say one more time etiquette <laughs> is leave everything at the cemetery and the graveyard yeah. just leave it where you found it don't be take respectful home. be respectful that's really what it comes down if it's if not you yours it home, you may be taking home something else <laughs> you might like... be taking something you didn't bargain for <laughs> exactly <laughs> I have no idea, but just, yeah, not a good idea. So a lot of them disappeared also. We'll talk about that in a minute. But in the beginning of Charleston, they didn't have the slate stones. They all came from New England where there were quarries and oh. harbors and that kind of thing. So many of the headstones were just wooden crosses or... Okay, that you know, makes more a, sense. They a would piece have of wood that's carved into or something. And those literally do disappear over time. They just yeah, start weathering and, and mm -hmm. get hit by a few cannonballs. I mean, yeah. stuff happens to, okay, that makes to sense. graves. So unfortunately, over time, in every graveyard, mm -hmm. headstones go. Headstones go, yeah. I can understand. No, I don't really understand people picking up pieces like that doesn't seem right. as weird to me but a full-on headstone just like the idea of it made me laugh really yeah. hard this someone like, running through this the cool. street i'm just gonna take my headstone this is mine now it could happen it could, it totally could. happen 
So while, again, many gravestones have disappeared. (laughs) We digress. (laughs) We digress. Sorry. (laughs) More than 500 stones remain with about 730 individuals named on those stones. Another 620 people are named in church records with indications they were most likely buried in the graveyard. And so as Brad and I turn toward this graveyard, of course, first you have to kind of look at the church and how amazing it is. But you know why I'm really there. Mm-hmm. And we turned to the <laughs> side towards the graveyard. And just first thing, we saw slate headstones. Mm-hmm. And we like, knew, like, okay, this is going to be good. Yeah, <laughs> like, this, this is where we belong. <laughs> this is it. <laughs> Got my camera running. <laughs> and just within a few steps, I was seeing the oldest stones that I had ever seen in the U.S. Wow. And mostly all of them were from the 1700s, ornately carved tympanums and borders with death's head, with wings. These were the first that I had ever seen in real life. I've seen many pictures and, of course, follow many other taphophiles that live in New England or Mm -hmm. in the South where some of these are. But this was the first time that I had seen with my own eyes a death's head carving. Wow on a stone and it was just thrilling what's a tympanum tympanum is the top part the rounded part at the top of Mm -hmm. a headstone okay and so on that rounded part is usually where you would see the carved you know death's head or a soul effigy or something it's in that very top part that makes like a half circle on the top yeah Mm -hmm. and then The sides are called borders, and sometimes they actually, they kind of round up. You know, you've seen pictures Mm -hmm. that where they goes up and then a little rounded Mm -hmm. and then the half circle and then another little bump down, you know, and then goes down. Yeah, almost all of these old ones looked just like that. I mean, it just looked like kind of in Halloween, you know, what you would think about as a cemetery or a headstone. I I would buy one of those to put in my yard for Halloween type. Okay, yeah, exactly. got it. And Maybe that's so why just, people still <laughs> like we'll just get real ones. Like we'll just no, 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 no. Don't do that. No, 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 no. And so some of them had skull and crossbones. There were soul effigies and portraits carved all by hand. I wow. mean, I was totally geeking out mm-hmm. by this. I mean, I know not everyone gets excited about headstones, but probably <laughs> most of you here kind of do. Kind of get it. You at least get me by now. But oh my gosh, some of them you could see score lines. Oh, like where they carved? Yes, where the carver made wow. like straight lines going across to show him the place to carve the individual letters of the epitaphs to keep them straight. I don't know. It just made it more personal. Like you could see. Like a human being actually took the time to make these beautiful, they're works of art basically at that point. Yes, exactly. And you could see, you know, individual hammer strokes and, Mm -hmm. you know, the carving lines and where he set things out. And sometimes there was even a name at the bottom by the carver. Many of them there weren't. But they use the old English ways of writing, which Mm -hmm. is so fun, too. So they would say, here lies the body of with L-Y-E-S. And such gorgeous work all by hand, just really ornate and fancy lettering. And it just was like, how did they do this? And if you messed up, like in the middle of an epitaph, like, what do you do? (laughs) You start the whole thing over? or maybe you know, there's a way that you can like chunk it out maybe i have no maybe clue. he did like a stencil of some mm. kind before i don't know i don't either you work hard at it yeah you're <laughs> just like a anything master else at it. exactly <laughs> true and after years and years of seeing newer stones and we see so many now that are not made by hand they're done with a laser mm-hmm. they're done you know and that's why they're always perfect and they are perfect Mm -hmm. but they're so boring (laughs) 
bring back the old days when we had to carve our own uh, or hire well, someone to carve our headstones. Exactly. And that's why we loved Andrew Carr from Stones Over Bones. Yeah, that was because he's doing cool. it all by hand. So yes, he is. But it was just so thrilling to see these stones that were such individual pieces of art. There cannot be another one exactly like it mm-hmm. anywhere because it's an individual carver. And I really see headstones as just that, works of art by someone that lived in the 1700s. 300 years later, we're still looking at this beautiful piece of art that has been in the weather all of that time. Yeah. It's been snowed on. It's been through the on. war. It's <laughs> been through wars. Yeah. It has been through, what, what they say, hurricanes of fire and yeah. everything else. It's like, how are they even still standing? Yeah. And of course, some of them are really flaking and there's a lot of wear and sometimes mm-hmm. the whole front will just be gone or the top or and some are laying on the ground or even broken but couldn't believe what great shape some of them were actually in yeah so you're just standing in a place with so much history that's really amazing we've been to lots of cemeteries that are victorian age mm-hmm. and they of course have still the hand carved stones and statuary and Mm -hmm. and all of that. And we've talked quite a bit in a few episodes about that. And so this is just like going back another hundred years. Mm -hmm. And so it's just that much more primitive. And so there isn't the statuary there. There wasn't a single... Okay, um, so there wasn't like angels or like the little lambs or... This was all older than that. So literally the beginning of headstones in America and the kinds of things that they put on these headstones. Mm -hmm. And hopefully I can kind of help give you an idea of how it felt and and what they looked like. Tombstones aren't just an indication of who was laid to rest in that plot. Mm -hmm. They can actually help us and historians understand the demographic and social history of the city or area that they're in. And since Charleston was founded in 1670, there was so much to learn in this very oldest graveyard of the city. However, in the beginning, Charleston lacked a supply of stone to mark the graves. So like I said, wooden markers were used for so many of the graves until about 1820s when custom stones started being shipped in from New England. As a consequence of the wooden material, the grave markings sometimes disappeared, Taylor, (laughs) or were never marked at all, Mm. meaning that there are hundreds of burials in church grounds all over the world that cannot be seen. At least not by the living. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then in 1836, as we've heard about in many episodes, burials in the city were prohibited due to health concerns on the low-lying ground. Mm. And so they start pushing the cemeteries out of the city. There's limited space in a churchyard. Yeah, they have a certain amount of yard to right. put So that's always one of the reasons they always run out of space. But that's also one of the reasons you don't see Victorian era stones in these churchyards in the really old cities of the United States. Then they started moving them outside of the churchyards. So they will be in some of the, like Magnolia Cemetery. I saw tons of Uh those era. And we'll get to that one on another episode. Okay, just a little teaser there for everybody. A little teaser about Magnolia (laughs) Cemetery. But as one of the oldest graveyards in Charleston, there's some really amazing statistics here. The earliest inscribed gravestone is 1729. Wow. And the number of burials that took place before 1776 was 150. And then the number of burials for people who were born before the year 1800 is 450 people. Wow. That's a lot. Really a lot. So even though there were a lot of graves there, there's still a lot of people that have no marker whatsoever. Mm. So I want to hear more about the art on the gravestones. That's what I'm excited about. Totally. (laughs) With the large concentration of 18th century gravestones, walking through the churchyard is such a rewarding exploration with rare glimpses into the religious and artistic history of the young colony. So the oldest 
burials that are still there, the ones we talked about earlier, that was the only thing that was left basically after the fire mm -hmm. came through, was for the family of Henry Simons. The first gift of land to Circular Church, the lot on which the church still stands, was made by Henry Simons in the early 1690s. Quote, for the religious worship of God to be publicly solemnized and performed by any Protestant dissenting minister of the Congregational, Independent, or Presbyterian persuasion, unquote. <laughs> and so this oldest tomb, it is unmarked. It doesn't have any writings from the time. Mm -hmm. It is an arched vault made out of bricks, and it has lots of moss around it and I don't know if it was plastered or painted, but it's kind of white along the top. So it kind of makes a dome and it is to the southeast of the present church building and is said to contain the remains of Henry Simons, his wife, Francis, and their son, whose name is not known. 1695. Wow. Yeah. So that itself is very different from any of the others that uh -huh. are there as well but it's the only one from the 1600s that is still there. So mm -hmm. maybe there were others that looked like that. Does it have like like their names and stuff on it? Or it's just uh -uh. like they just have known that that's who this is this yeah. whole time? That's interesting. Like I said as well, the oldest gravestones are made of slate and were shipped from carvers in New England. And you could tell that they're from different quarries they mm -hmm. are actual different colors of gray slate. Some Interesting. are more gray, some are a little more blue, some are actually a little purple. Mm -hmm. And so it's really interesting just to look at the stones as well. The slates of the Perrineau family, for example, give us a graphic history of the changing portrayals of death in colonial America. There were generations of Perrineaus that were interred in the circular church graveyard. And so you can kind of see the evolution of stone carving and ideas about death and the afterlife by what is actually carved on their stones. Interesting, in just one family. <laughs> right. So first in the cemetery, you see skull and crossbones of the earliest stones, and you can see a few of these in this graveyard. And I even saw one with a skull and crossbones above it, really pretty big, with a soul effigy below it. Looks like they're covering all their bases. Right. Then there is another one, actually, we saw a few like it, but there was a person's head, but kind of bald with bulgy eyes. What? And Brad and I were joking that they kind of looked like aliens. We're like, oh, it's one of those alien angels. <laughs> it was really kind of weird looking, but who knows? Maybe that person, thats that was his signature, right? Picasso or something. You think if you were like that? Yeah. No, there, it wasn't it just, just one. bald man. It was just this weird kind of bald, bulgy-eyed, I don't know what you call this. That's hilarious. And there was a few little wisp of wings on the sides, but it had like this giant scythe that came above and then went below. Then there was an hourglass to the side. So it was really different with a lot of the huh. old symbols of the scythe, you know, emblems Do you think of it death. And a new interpretation of death? Yeah, I don't know, but it had the little wings. So. Oh, the angel of death. Oh, maybe it was. Mm -hmm. Maybe he was like the creepy angel of death. Why would you want that on your headstone? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but the center of this stone is really damaged. It looks like a cannonball hit it in the middle. Like oh. there's just this whole dent out oh, of wow. which could totally be wrong. Maybe it was a musket ball or yeah. a football, or I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> there's just a dent in it right, there's like a dent and you can't make out whose grave it is but i guess a british cannonball did burst in the graveyard during a sunday service in 1780 during a sunday service yeah during the sunday <laughs> service there's been fire earthquakes and vandalism so all of these things have taken their toll in the graveyard but it has been recently restored which was a project shared with the historic Charleston Foundation. 
and it's unmatched in the South as a repository of distinguished funerary art. And they state that their challenge is to preserve and maintain these historic artifacts, which of course they are. The evolution of grave marker artwork over the years reflects the changing attitudes toward death more graphically than do the inscriptions themselves. Mm -hmm. The people were still pretty stark in their ideas of heaven and hell, and they were unsure of what their place would be, right? Mm -hmm. And they often, during this time, the inscription was more like the mortal remains of, or here lies the body of, or... Buried here are the remains of, very to the point, this is where what remains of the person are left. Who Right. <laughs> this is their body. Their soul may not be here, but their body is yeah. definitely this here. This is everything that is left of this person. Interesting. So as they get more hopeful, as things change, and we've talked about this too in other episodes, the skull then begins to evolve into a skull with some little wings on the side. Then the skeletal head changes to more angelic looking, more like a live person or a cherub or not a an balding angel. <laughs> Man with balding eyes? <laughs> exactly. <sighs> and then it moves to portraits or portrait busts, which was all new to us too. I hadn't oh. seen those either. Portraits of the person buried well, there? Well, I'll tell you that. The busts are first primitive, and then they become more classical looking. Okay. So these slates with images and medallion portraits have been called by one writer, quote, an extraordinary and irreplaceable legacy of our artistic and cultural past, unquote. So according to one gravestone historian, there are more of these unusual 18th century slate stones in this graveyard than anywhere else in the country. Hmm. You should be a gravestone historian. <laughs> I might get there. You might get this there. Is all over. <laughs> but I am still learning a lot of things too. So back to the Perrineaus. Desiree Perrineau died in 1740, and her headstone has Death's head as her motif on her grave. And it's complete with Here Lies L Y E S, mm -hmm. buried the body of Desiree Perrineau. And it is one of the most beautiful examples of death's head that, of course, this is the first I had seen, but in other photographs mm -hmm. and stuff as well. It's very ornate. The head itself has big sideways oval eyes with a big eyebrow starting in the middle and goes up and over the eyes, ending in the outside corners with an upward hook. And the nose is like a teepee with a tiny triangle in it. Now, this is very reminiscent of the stone carver of Boston that we talked about with Andrew Carr. After talking to Andrew, he said that the carver was an apprentice of the stone carver of Boston. Oh. And I'm going to do a whole episode about this as well. So I'm not going to say anything more about that, but their work stands for itself and is its own calling card. So the nose is like a teepee with a tiny triangle in it. There are two rows of straight big teeth that go out clear to the sides of the skull. <laughs> There's no skull around the side. It's just these big giant teeth. <laughs> and there's just like a little piece, a little round piece of chin underneath and a bit of an upper lip over the top teeth. Hmm. And the wings are so lovely. They come up kind of about to the mid head height and then flow down with five rows of feathers. It's just so beautifully carved and it's still just so distinguishable. It isn't fading into nothing. I mean, it still is just really easy to see. Wow. Just really amazing for several hundred years of being out there. Then the sides have really fancy borders and they have five swirls going opposite directions, going down with a rosette at the top in mm -hmm. those little curved humps that are at the top of the border. And then above, at the top of the tympanum, there is just beautiful carvings below and above the death's head. And so it was really ornate. Of course, I will post pictures and have them on the website. And there were actually quite a few in this graveyard that had death's head. And so for seeing my first one, there was a lot of firsts in this mm -hmm. graveyard. Like, I'm like, what? And here's another one. 
look over here. Here's another one. Here's a soul image. So it's kind of like a scavenger hunt or something mm -hmm. when you go because you don't know what you're going to see. And then you see this really cool piece of artwork from the history. And it's just, I don't know. It's, I think it's so amazing. Yeah. But hers was my favorite death's head that I saw there. It was a large stone and just really beautiful. And you can tell that her family wanted something really special for her. And could afford it. <laughs> yeah. They definitely, that was probably a real pricey piece of work there. Sounds like it. There's one almost exactly like it for Mary Perrineau as well. They were a very large extended family, and there's many different stones for the Perrineau children and parents. On Desiree's grave, it says, Here lies buried the body of Mrs. Desiree Perrineau, wife to Mr. Henry Perrineau, who departed this life December 30th. I think it says, Anno Dom Amo, aged 60 years. Another death's head that is there is that of John Vanderhorst. John Vanderhorst was born in 1718. He passed away in 1787. He married Mary Elizabeth Foyson in 1734. Together, they had at least four children. She died in 1768. He remarried again in 1785. Dorothy Waring, a young woman 50 years younger than himself. Oh. <laughs> I don't know. Those okay. were the <laughs> His will was drafted February 27th, 1786, almost a year before he died. He named his wife, Dorothy Vanderhorst, as one-third recipient of the estate in lieu of dower. The rest of the estate was to be divided amongst his children, whether born or to be born, in the case all were deceased. Then he named some relatives as recipients of his estate. And even though Dorothy Vanderhorst was so much younger, she actually died two months after he did. Maybe her heart was broken. So... On Vanderhorst, his was a death's head as well, but you could tell it was a different carver, had a completely different look, mm -hmm. and it was much simpler, but mm -hmm. still very nice. After the death's head, although skulls were still in plain evidence, the crossbones there, you know, as death's head kind of comes into being used, the crossbones are replaced by wings. So then they call it, for some reason, it's called death's head. So although the skull continued to emphasize death, the wings were introducing the idea of flight from earth or life after death. So death's head, often with wings or crossbones or both, was a stylized skull, mm -hmm. right? And I saw many that had crossed bones above death's head or even a soul effigy. So they still like to have their bones on there as well. Hmm. Some have speculated that winged skulls were intended to symbolize a combination of physical death and spiritual regeneration. Mm. Now, the Puritans, they did not advocate using religious symbols such as cherubs, Christ figures, or crosses in their meeting houses, on the church silver, or even on their gravestones. So Puritans were adamantly against attributing human form to spiritual beings such as God, angels, or spirits. Interesting. So as the years passed, the sculptors emphasized life more and more, and death less and less. At first, they began softening the skull's appearances by adding upper lips mm -hmm. and eyebrows, and later they even began adding noses and mouths. Wow. So in the early stages of this change, beginning around 1730, the sculptors inserted the mouth between the skull's nose and teeth. And although the teeth were retained, they were dropped down, so they kind of look more like high collars or some kind of funny disfigured chins. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> right. You're telling me that they had a mouth, but they still had teeth underneath the mouth? Right. The little upper lip kind of looks like a downturned smile, uh -huh. so it's just kind of a upside down, you know, like a, like frown. a little frown. And so it just looks like the skull has a little frowny face. But then when you look at it again, you see this big old double row of teeth underneath it. So it's kind of one of those things you look once and you see one thing and you look once and you see it kind yeah. of different. So I don't know what the deal is what? with that. But that's just, yeah. That's crazy. I'll show pictures of that too. <laughs> So still later, around 1740 to 45, the teeth then just disappear from the skulls altogether. 
The wings remain, however, and at that point, the skulls, they kind of lost all the harshness. So they start to, like mm-hmm. I said, they look more like softer. angel faces. Mm-hmm. And in fact, that's about what they were. Sounds like the teeth were a good idea to get rid of. Yeah, let's get rid of the let's funky teeth. Let's get rid of the scary, weird... <laughs> Random teeth. And they didn't call them skulls or death's head any longer, but soul effigies. Okay. So when you see one with a skull, that's called death's head. And then you see one that has more of the little angelic face or a person's face, Mm -hmm. but with the wings, that's called a soul effigy. So the soul effigy, it represents the flight of the soul from one realm to the other from earth to heaven and symbolizes the transition the soul makes on that journey. It's like we've said before about angel wings. It's not that, you know, everyone believes that angels have wings. It's that the wings represent holiness and Mm -hmm. a transition. Yeah. Moving from being in one area to the next. Exactly. This iconography represents a change from the harsh Puritan imagery of skulls and crossbones and just this is it and Mm -hmm. there's nothing else. Then from winged death's heads and the accoutrements of the grave, such as the casket or coffin and burial instruments, such as the pick and the axe, which you see a lot of times in those really old crossed bones. Some of the other motifs accompanying death's head are hourglasses, or even sometimes winged hourglasses, symbolizing the concept that time flies. A lot of times you see coffins carved elaborately on side panels with florets, finials, foliage, fruit, figures. Some historians and students of material culture have asserted that the greater use of winged cherubic images, which have been interpreted as a symbol for the soul's flight to heaven, was indicative of changing religious sentiments. This theory asserts that changing religious philosophies led to greater acceptance and more widespread usage of symbols forbidden for Mm -hmm. a long time because they were considered to be graven images. After much research, however, historians and statisticians have discovered that as a motif, the cherub never truly displaced the death's head. It was more like the shift from death's head to cherubic imagery did not correspond chronologically with any of the religious movements of the 18th century. Mm -hmm. So both Death's Head and Cherub were widely employed motifs well into the late 18th century. So they were Hmm. used at the same time. Mm -hmm. There were many variations of Death's Head motif. The characteristics of the image depended entirely on the preferred style of the carver. Just as with other craftsmen, gravestone carvers had special, special techniques and skills. Style was almost a calling card. Through probate research, newspaper announcements, and advertisements, signed or initialed stones, ledger books, and other primary source materials, 20th century historians have been able to identify many of these craftsmen. Hmm. As the settlers began to achieve more stable lifestyles and accumulate wealth, they were better able to afford more elaborate personal items which could serve as reflections of their socioeconomic status, which included large or elaborately carved gravestones as well. Hmm. Along with those big houses, they got the big old gravestones. (laughs) (laughs) The major contribution of the 18th century to American gravestone art was portraiture. The term portraiture is used in gravestone studies to mean natural representations of the deceased. Although whether the carver attempted to capture an individual likeness rather than simply to represent a style is a question that is still being studied. While there are many examples of portraiture in Circular's churchyard, none have been located in any other South Carolina or Georgia towns. Another type of decorative carving, often called portrait stones, was more selectively employed on Boston gravestones. The images are not actual portraits of the deceased person, yet they do realistically resemble people. Hair, distinct facial features, and clothing are prominent characteristics of these portrait carvings. Because many carvers repeatedly use certain motifs and styles for carving, study has shown the faces of many of the portraits are nearly identical. So it's not that they were really trying to carve a portrait of a person Mm -hmm. in stone, but just 
that it was a an man idea. and maybe, you know, maybe a person is buried here. Right. <laughs> exactly. Not a specific person, but a person. Right. And there's enough Roman style portraits that exist in Charleston to suggest that by the mid 1700s, Americans were beginning to identify themselves culturally with the Romans. Hmm. There is a bust of Solomon Milner, which has been called the most notable and best preserved example of neoclassicism from 18th century Charleston, reflects the popularity of this style. And again, very Romanesque bust. It has two rings carved into the sides with drapery that drape through one ring and down across under the bust and over the other ring. Mm Mm-hmm. There are also examples of the portraiture for some of the Paranos. So the Paranos have all of those, the death's head, the the Mm -hmm. effigies, the soul effigies, and the portraitures. There's also a box tomb that is there of a major Anthony Toomer. And he became a leader of the Patriot cause during the Revolutionary War. By profession, he was a builder and a housewright. For many years after the war, he served on the state legislature. The box tomb of Major Toomer is part of the Warham family plot. His wife's inscription, that of Anne Warham Toomer, is the only still legible on the monument. Hmm. He served in the Revolution as captain and was a prisoner of the British upon the fall of Charleston in May of 1780. He represented St. Philip and St. Michael parishes in the First and Second Provincial Congresses and in the South Carolina General Assembly. He was also the father of Henry Bono Toomer. The inscription says, Departed this life after a long and distressing illness, which he bore Hmm. with manly fortitude, Departed this life, much lamented, in the line... <laughs> Sorry, manly fortitude is funny. <laughs> he bore with manly fortitude. I mean, I know some men when they're sick, and I don't know if that's oh, manly fortitude. If that's, but... if that's what you call manly fortitude. Oh, okay. <laughs> in the line of his business, which he carried on with persevering industry in the space of 30 years, he was respected as the head. His patriotic disposition led him forth in the earliest stage of that revolution, which gave freedom and independence to the country of his birth, commencing his military services in the private station, from which he advanced by regular progression until he obtained a majority in the Charleston Ancient Battalion of Artillery with with other marks of public confidence and esteem. He was ever found deserving of especially as an honest and patriot member of the legislature of the state of which he was returned from this city for 15 years successfully. That's a long inscription. Yeah, how? I'm, that's what I'm saying. Like, how did these guys inscribe these? It just seems... Days? <laughs> yeah. Months. <laughs> Months. One word <laughs> at a time. And and they made it all flowery and so flowy with so many words. Mm-hmm. You couldn't have said the same things in, <laughs> in two senses. <laughs> I don't know. Look, he served in the war. He was great at it. Yeah. He, he died. The legislature. <laughs> and he got sick. <laughs> and he died. Sorry. Sorry about that. <laughs> we love you. <laughs> Uh, All right, Taylor, tell us about David Ramsey. So David Ramsey was a Pennsylvanian who graduated from Princeton at age 16. Mm. He earned a medical degree in Pennsylvania, and just before the Revolutionary War, he moved to Charleston. Ramsey was primarily a doctor, but he also served in the Continental Congress and wrote several histories of the American Revolution, of South Carolina, mm-hmm. and of the independent or congregational circular church <laughs> of Charleston. Ramsey was a staunch patriot and was among the community leaders exiled to St. Augustine, Florida. There you go. And then later to Philadelphia. After the war, he married Martha Lawrence. Together, they raised eight children, plus several nieces and nephews. Interesting. Mm -hmm. The top of the Ramsey Pinckney gravestone is broken off, but the remaining inscription is easily readable. Then there's another Perrineau, 
who died in 1774. His name is Arthur Perrineau, and he may have been the first person buried in a large brick vault near the center of the yard identified as Hudson Perrineau. This is by far the largest burial monument in the churchyard, approximately 10 by 10 by 10. An archaeological survey made in the early 1980s found that at least 18 persons had been buried in the vault, Whoa. many of whom are listed in church records. 18? That's what they said. Also buried there is Richard Hudson, and he is perhaps the most noted person buried in the vault there. He died in 1795, and he was a brother-in-law of Arthur Perrineau. Again, this it seemed to be a big extended family. Mm -hmm. He was selected for the first mayor of Charleston in 1783. There's a plaque attached to the vault in 1995 by the Hudson family, identifying their ancestor, Richard Hudson, on the 200th anniversary of his death. Aww. It was a South Carolina State House representative serving three terms, I believe, delegate to the Continental Congress from South Carolina, serving from 1778 to 1779, a signer of the Articles of Confederation in 78, member of South Carolina Legislature Council, Lieutenant Governor of South Carolina, and delegate to South Carolina State Constitutional Convention. Wow, he in did 1788. <laughs> so he was kind of a big deal. <laughs> so do you know that it is known as one of the most haunted places in Charleston? Oh, so now you're going to bring up all of the ghosty stuff when I'm on the episode, huh? <laughs> you just wait for me to show okay. up so that you can I'm do like, all Taylor, this. it's really historical and there's nothing <laughs> creepy at all. <sighs> except for that it is. <laughs> Many? No, I did not know. <laughs> Answer your question. <laughs> Many people say that they have seen Revolutionary War soldiers wandering the grounds. Ooh. I would love to see me a Revolutionary War soldier. Depends on who it is, I guess. Come on, that would be cool, Taylor. I don't know. I just don't like the idea of seeing anybody. <laughs> you want to see any ghosts? People that listen to this podcast know I don't want to see I just no think it would be so cool. Like you're standing there and then all of a sudden this revolutionary war soldier just floats through the cemetery. That would be the coolest thing ever. Yeah. <laughs> that would be, I'll give you that one. As long as he doesn't approach me or try to do anything yeah. to me. Sure. Yeah. Go ahead. A lot of the stories have come from tour guides. So there's tours mm -hmm. um, all over Charleston that take you to the cemetery and tell you about the notable people. Mm -hmm. And so there's some that even take you by the Congregational Circular Church here. And they say that they have never been afraid to give tours day or night. Hmm. And they like showing visitors the area no matter what time of day it is. And there is a nighttime one as well. Um, but this all changed when they gave a tour at night. And this particular tour guide said that she was giving her first tour of that night. And she began to see something strange walking around the graveyard. Mm. She said it looked very pale. And the closer she got to it, she could tell it was a figure of a person. She said it was a man who looked as if he was a Revolutionary War soldier. And then after that night, she saw him at least four other times when she was giving tours at night. And she mentioned that visitors on the tour with her had seen him too. And that they were a little frightened that night. Um, yeah. <laughs> so she wasn't the only one. Another visitor shared his story. He was a history buff. So visiting a graveyard with that much history was a dream come true. Mm -hmm. Sounds like he should be a friend. <laughs> and he was taking note of the historic markers and just how some of them had started to decay because of their age or the materials they were made out of. He also took note of the historical markers. And the first thing he pointed out was a picture he had taken on one of the nights of his visit. He said it was around 11 p.m., and in his picture, he said that he can see what looks like 
three or four metal buttons, as if they were on a man's soldier jacket. He looked up the buttons and found that there were several pictures of Revolutionary War soldiers in his research. Clearly, he's seeing the same soldier that the tour guide had seen. And in another picture (laughs) that he took, Taylor's eyes are really big. He said that he could see orbs flying in many directions, and he saw the soldier, but this time he was higher up in the air as if he were floating away. In his next visit to the graveyard, he mentioned seeing misty forms all over the area, and he heard voices and whispers in the graveyard as well. Are you scared yet? Ugh, yeah, I don't like the the voices and the whispers in the... yeah. I think that's that, really creepy. That would be scarier to me than actually seeing a ghost. I, I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> because there's nothing, like, you can't tell where it's coming from. So it's like, hello. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's creepy. That's a little ASMR for you guys. There you go. <laughs> and so another story comes from another visitor who was on a tour. And... She said the thing she saw will stay with her for the rest of her life. Oh, great. And they were terrifying. So she began her story with saying that the group began their tour at sunset, so it was a little dark, and she said the tour guide was chatting about the history of the graveyard, and she felt someone breathe down Mm. her neck. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. And of course she turns around to see what other tour member was breathing down her neck and Uh, standing in her bubble. Back up. And there was no one there. Oh, no. She said that the man next to her asked her what was wrong, and she just kind of blew it off. And then she turned back around and kept listening to the tour guide. As he talked, the feeling of someone now standing behind her and touching her neck with their cold finger began happening. No! She said she jumped out of fear, and the man next to her again asked what was going on. She then explains to him what had happened, but of course, he didn't believe her. She turns back around and the group began to walk from that spot onto another. Once the group got to the next grave, the woman saw something flying around the grave. And she raised her hand and asked, am I the only one that sees that? (laughs) (laughs) I do not blame her one bit. Excuse me. Does anyone else see this? Anyone else seeing this crazy thing that's happening? Am I going crazy? Oh, no. So the group was split half and half. Some said they saw orbs, and others said that they saw nothing. But for the poor lady, it doesn't get better. As the group moves through the graveyard, half the group stopped with fear. What they saw scared them so much that they have all written online blogs or reviews of the area about this story. (laughs) So the tour guide was talking about the American Revolution and, of course, was very knowledgeable about the soldiers that were buried here. And as he spoke, the tour group heard leaves rustling. Then they saw a spirit. This spirit was walking up to them as if they had just called it and he was coming And the poor woman said that it was the scariest thing she had ever seen. Oh, my gosh. The spirit was dressed in a uniform, much like the soldiers in the Revolutionary War. The buttons were metal, and the ghost walked closer and closer as some of the group began to back up. (laughs) Backing up. Backing (laughs) up. Nothing to do with that. And the tour guide ends his chat about the graveyard, and the ghost simply disappears. Mm. Mm-mm. <laughs> Mm-mm. I would have noped right out of there again <laughs> the second I felt something breathing down my neck and there was nobody there. I would have said, okay, right? no, 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 no. Yeah, I'm okay with seeing the guy float through the cemetery, but somebody they breathing down my neck, <laughs> touching me with their cold, dead feet. No, it's no. time to leave. That's- it's time to say... Okay, I've had enough now. I'm going to go home. Thanks for the tour. It was fantastic, but I'm out of here. I salute salute. (laughs) you. 
Barack, you Mr. Revolutionary Soldier for your service to our country. Thank you for being a very nasty ghost and touching me and breathing on my neck. But I I will not done. see you later. <laughs> Goodbye. Goodbye. No Do not more. follow me home. <laughs> Do not follow me home. You're welcome here, not at my house. <laughs> oh my gosh. Terrifying. All right, so that's all. <laughs> We're doing this at night. I'm going to sleep so well tonight. Yeah. I'll make you some hot cocoa before oh, you go home. Thanks. <laughs> well, thank you, Taylor, for being here and of helping course. tell the story of our circular congregational church. It really was amazing. And ghosty stories aside, I didn't go there at night. <laughs> I was there in the middle of the day, and it was beautiful. It was peaceful. Yeah. It was so neat to just see these really old stones, yeah. and I just really enjoyed myself. <laughs> it sounds like you did. Awesome. I don't blame you. It sounds really, really cool. Yeah. But, um, yeah, probably not going to that um, graveyard just because it is haunted and oh, even dear. during the day i don't want to risk it <laughs> i didn't see nothing doesn't mean they weren't there doesn't mean you won't see nothing doesn't mean they weren't there <laughs> doesn't mean they weren't watching you secretly and saying that's hmm. okay they're like hi pretty lady <laughs> <laughs> no then he would have breathed down your neck and then touched it with his fingers Ew. yeah <laughs> maybe they did and i just thought it was brad Oh my gosh. No, I'm just kidding. The truth has come out. <laughs> like, oh, hi, honey. Breathing down my neck. And he's like, all the way on the other side of the graveyard. And you're like, huh? <laughs> Who are you talking to? <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. We'll stop being silly now. Thanks for having me again. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome. I'm not sure about the hauntings in the graveyard, but I loved it. It was amazing and so cool to be able to see all the amazing examples of death's head, of the skull and crossbones, of soul effigies, and of portraitures. And hopefully you all enjoyed the tour through the cemetery and learned a little bit more about the old carvings of the 1700s. This was Stones, Bones, and Shadows. see photos and more information about the cemeteries we explore and find our sources at stonesbonesandshadowspodcast.com. Also, don't forget to check us out on Facebook, like us on Instagram, follow us on Twitter, and leave us a comment. We love to hear from our listeners.